Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories with Village Global. I'm here today again with Joey Krug, co-founder of Augur and partner at Pantera, back again on the podcast. Joey, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Okay, Joey, so we, we were here about a year ago and you just launched Augur. Can you talk about what's what's happened since? What have been some of the highlights, some of the challenges, and what, what's the state of, of Augur today? Yeah, so um, kind of the state of Augur today is, you know, if you look at that first release, it was functional, but it, it wasn't really anything beyond functional. And by that, I mean like the the quality of like, I guess the product wasn't super high in the sense that like, oh, it's very expensive to use, you know, 50 steps to use the thing, that sort of thing. And so um, that's kind of what the V1 release was just to get something out there that was functional, even though it wasn't necessarily a great product. And then I think uh, for V2, <clears throat> which is kind of what's being worked on and, and aiming to launch that this summer, the idea is that at that point, Augur is actually a good usable experience. So doing things like adding support for DAI, stablecoin, to make it so that you don't need Ether to trade or bet, making things faster, making the user experience a lot smoother, cutting the number of steps down to actually use it you know, from 50 to something that's more reasonable, basically a bunch of usability improvements that uh, make using Augur a lot, a lot kind of better of an experience. And I think if you look at the launch uh, in 2018, the kind of big negatives or, or downsides were really just those things that I outlined is, is mostly the kind of usability stuff. Positives is, is despite that, you know, there was some usage like uh, on the presidential election market that got, you know, around a million dollars and uh, that's matched um, mostly because a couple of whales used Augur because it was kind of the only venue <clears throat> where they're able to do, use the kind of bet size that they wanted to use. Whereas, you know, if you're going through a bookie, they're going to limit you because they don't want to take on huge risks. You know, bookies are kind of like market makers. They don't want to take on huge positional risks. You know, if you're doing a large trade for something, of course, it's always better to find somebody who wants to take the exact opposite bet because you'll get a better price versus if you hand it off to a market maker, aka a bookie in the tri- in the betting world, they're going to charge you a pretty high fee to make a large bet. And is there anything else that surprised you uh, about uh, the usage of Augur over the last year? Yeah, I, I surprised actually how many markets were created. There are a lot more markets created than I thought. You know, there's like, I think, I think around 1,500 or more at this point. And I thought there might be, you know, maybe 100, maybe 150. I just looked it up, there's 2,073. So I thought there would be less markets. And then I thought that um, people who created the markets would kind of do more to promote them uh, than they did. Like if you think of Augur, it's, it's kind of a generic platform, similar to something like, you know, Amazon or eBay or it's more like kind of like Amazon, but for, for prediction markets. So if you go to Amazon, you create a store there, you can list the product, like you can list something that you can sell. But if you don't actually promote your listing, it's not really going to get any traction. If you're there very early and you create a listing that gets traction in some, some like say it's like some like household item section, say you listed like your first um, microwaves on Amazon or something obscure like that, then you might link to the top because you're kind of the only person selling microwaves on Amazon. But people who aren't aware of Amazon or people who aren't you know, aware of your site, just because you listed it on Amazon doesn't mean that there's automatically going to be a ton of traffic 
And so like, if you make a market, if you make a, sorry, if you list a product on Amazon today, if you don't promote it, you're not going to be, you're basically not going to get any traffic. And so the thing that surprised me was that market creators on Augur haven't really done that much to actually promote the markets that they've created, which was a bit surprising to me. Maybe it's kind of like an educational thing, or maybe uh, people aren't promoting them today because, you know, it'd be too expensive to promote them because like sending users to a site to then make them buy Ether to then participate in the market is so many steps that they may actually make less money than the cost that it takes to promote the market. And so maybe they're waiting for like improvements to those things before it makes sense to, to spend time and effort trying to promote markets. But I think that's the main surprising thing. Yeah. And let's zoom out for a second for the, for the people who missed our, our first episode. Why don't you give a quick overview of what's the, the promise of Augur and, and prediction markets more broadly? What are some of the strongest benefits that, that they bring and why should we be really excited about them? Yeah. So, you know, if you look at Augur, really the kind of vision uh, at a very high level is to basically democratize and kind of decentralize both finance and betting, specifically on trading kind of synthetic assets. And so, that basically means you can bet on, you know, things like who will become president in the United States or who will become president, you know, in China. Say that one's probably a little more obvious. But then uh, you can kind of do things well beyond that. So the cool part about Augur is people can create their own markets. So you can participate in markets that you just can't trade on elsewhere. Like right now, there's a market on Augur for how expensive will the new Tesla Model Y be when it's released. Um, so kind of what will be the, the starting price for the Model Y. And I guess the other two benefits are that, you know, right now, for long-term fees will be lower on Augur than other venues. Right now, they're not really lower in practice because Ethereum is pretty slow and pretty expensive to use. So Augur is actually more expensive than other options. Uh, but over time, that pendulum will swing. And I think Augur will probably be the cheapest option for betting on something kind of anywhere. And then I guess the last benefit of this if you look at Augur, since it's all peer to peer, there's no bookie in the middle who takes your bet. So therefore, there's no there's no kind of limit on how much you can bet. Whereas in a bookie style system, you know, a bookie may limit your bet to five thousand or ten thousand, because if they take more than that, they're just taking on kind of an inordinate amount or too much risk. But if it's all peer to peer, you know, it's not really a bookie on the other side, but it's somebody else who wants to actually take the other side. Of course, there's challenges with this, like. You know, you need, it's important to actually bootstrap liquidity. Otherwise, people don't show up. Um, and there's a bunch of kind of usability issues with Augur today. But I think we can get past those and, and eventually kind of really start to fulfill the, the larger mission. And there's also this, this deep philosophical belief with, with prediction markets that uh, in the wisdom of the crowds and that crowds can help make better decisions. And, you know, instead of just asking a board whether they should fire a CEO, you can also ask the employees. The employees have some insight, board doesn't, or instead of just relying on elected representatives to make even government decisions, the Reverend Hansonian idea of Utarchy, you can uh, ask people directly and, and get perhaps better input at, at scale. Is, is that accurate? Talk about where the wisdom of crowd uh, applies and, and where, it, where it doesn't apply in your view. Yeah, so um, yeah, the wisdom of crowds is like the classic example, or actually when this was first discovered, I mean, there's a bunch of different stories, but the most common one is that it was discovered by... Um, some guy, I forget his name, but he basically went to like a fair, um, like a county fair in like England in like the 1800s, I think. And he ran an experiment where he asked people like, what do you think the weight of, uh, of this bowl is? Um, and he just like asked tons of random people, you know, people who knew nothing about, about cattle. The weights ended up averaging out 
and they're within, I think, like five pounds of the actual weight, uh, kind of of the animal. So he thought that was pretty interesting because um, these people had very wildly ranging guesses. You know, some people way under guessed, you know, and said crazy numbers like 300 pounds, whereas some people way over guessed and said numbers like 10,000 pounds. The, the kind of extremes ended up evening out and the kind of median result was actually very close to what it actually weighed. And so then people started extending this and saying, okay, well, you know, why can't you apply this to other things that are more interesting? You know, if you look at financial markets, they're kind of similar in the sense that you have all these stakeholders basically betting against each other. And a lot of the, a lot of the kind of people who are uninformed, their bets should even out, right? Because if you're uninformed, you're generally uninformed, like not in a specific direction. Because if you were informed in a specific direction, you would, you would actually just be informed, you wouldn't be uninformed. And so the concept is that these kind of uninformed people cancel out in what surfaces is like some sort of uh, underlying like informed reality. It's like there's some, some classic examples of this, of like how fast the stock market moves. It's like when, um, when one of the NASA shuttles blew up, I think it was Challenger, the stock market actually figured out which company had created like the faulty O-rings and the price of that company like went down like 10% um, within a few days. But the government investigation to actually figure out that it was that company that, that created the faulty product took like six to nine months. So it's an example of how like fast and how relatively accurate markets can be. And so if you look at governance implications of this, the idea is that, well, you can use these markets to help make decisions, starting from something relatively benign, which is like, we want to make a decision about, about like maybe, or one example, here's a, here's a very specific example. Say you're trying to like, you know, improve like uh, the situation with global warming. And one proposed way to do that is to actually suck carbon dioxide out of the air. And then you can sell it to like other people, like you can sell it to like Coca-Cola and they can put it in their drinks for to make the carbonation. And so if you want to do that, the big question is, okay, like what's the actual cheapest way uh, to do this? And it's mostly in the research stage or prototype stage. So there's a bunch of different options that people have. And so the prediction market question would be basically you'd have people bet on what like uh, scientific technique is going to be the cheapest and most cost-effective way to sequester, so they call it, or to capture carbon out of the air. And then um, then you basically run an experiment. People who are right win money. People who are wrong lose money. And you can kind of keep repeating it. That's kind of at a small scale. People like Robin Hansen, who's an economist uh, on the East Coast, he proposes that, well, you could use this for um, governments as well. And so like, if you think of um, the way Congress works today, it's really just people kind of have these high-level ideological viewpoints. And then they construct uh, bills around that. And then a lot of times lobbyists also construct bills and, and try to kind of lobby for their bill to get passed. But with prediction markets, the concept would be, well, let's define some metrics that we want to improve. Like maybe it's really important that the U.S. have a GDP that's growing. And maybe it's really important that employment stay below 5%, but we don't really care if it's at 4% or 3%, 3.5. We just want it to be below 5%. It's just kind of all hypothetical things. And then what you would do is you would make prediction markets on these events. So like if we pass this bill, what will it do to unemployment? Or if we pass this bill, you know, if you pass a stimulus plan, how will it affect GDP? And the idea is to use prediction markets um, for that sort of thing. I think my personal view is that it makes more sense to start with the smaller use cases first. So start with the things like the carbon example. And if they end up working well for that, then kind of slowly work your way up. Maybe you start with a city's sort of governance. Um, it's like maybe San Francisco 
and you're trying to figure out, you know, how to basically like keep the streets cleaner, you know, less needles and, and things like that on the streets. And maybe there's a bunch of different ideas and you start testing them out and trying them. And then if it works at that level, then kind of go up another level, go to the state level. And then eventually once you've proven it out, then you can go to like the federal level and things like that. What about the, uh, the criticism, I guess, that people have of direct democracy, that if everyone voted in everything, society would collapse into mediocrity. So having a small number of people in charge is, is sort of a necessary evil. How do you respond to that? Yeah, so I mean, I guess the prediction markets and using them for kind of governance, which I think is one of the more kind of out there use cases. It's, it's probably, you know, a decade plus away, but um, could happen. I think for that use case, you know, it's, it's not really like everyone voting on everything. In fact, it's very specific. So the way, the way you think about it is the government still works very similar to how it does today in the sense that, you know, people in government still propose bills in this like hypothetical world. They still propose bills. They still actually author the bills and they still do most of the things that they do today. The only difference is that decision-making kind of for like which one is going to be most effective is based off of these like key metrics that people are betting on. So it requires kind of defining metrics like what do we actually want to improve? Like, do we want to improve GDP or you know, do we have more kind of obscure metrics that we want to try to focus on? But people don't actually kind of vote on like all the specifics. People are just voting at a very high level, like between these three options, which one do you think is, is going to more improve kind of like GDP? But they're not like, you know, there's no like direct democracy over like, you know, should we keep this line in a bill or not? They're not like actually deciding every decision that a, that a congressman or congresswoman would do. They're deciding things more at a, at a high level, kind of like big picture decisions. Things where like you probably would actually want, if you're a fan of democracy, you would actually want people to be able to vote on. So like if you look at like over the past few years, what sort of big ticket item uh, legislation has there been? There's been like the Trump tax plan. There's been Obamacare. You know, almost, almost coming up on a decade now, there is the uh, stimulus package after after the Great Recession. And those are probably the three biggest pieces of legislation in, in U.S. politics in the past decade. Those are probably things that you would use these markets for, but you wouldn't necessarily use it for like some small, some small bill that you know modified something that was relatively inconsequential. And it, it, the interesting thing about prediction markets, you know, the, the idea has been around for a long time, and so, so the question of why they haven't become mainstream is is you know is it, it were the bottlenecks technological or were they sort of social and cultural? And to take the social and cultural standpoint for a second, you know, you, you, the critique or idea is that uh, people in power deep down don't actually care about accurately predicting outcomes and more just about, you know, reinforcing their power, in which case prediction markets may not, may not suit them. What do you say to that, that critique? And if true, what, what wedge does prediction markets need to, to actually become mainstream or, or what's going what's gonna to bring that forth? You know, there's kind of always been, I guess the way I think about it is there, there's some of the element is technical, I think. In the sense that, like prior to systems like Augur, you know, you you did have relatively low limits. They weren't really true marketplaces. Fees are pretty high because if you want people to participate in these things that are that are kind of um, you know fast-paced, relatively accurate markets, you can't have fees being super high. Um, otherwise, that decreases activity and it decreases accuracy a lot, and it kind of decreases the incentive to participate. Because if you have say like a if you have like a two percent edge on information but the fee is 3%, then you're never going to trade and improve the, improve the market. And the last thing from a tech side before going into the society side, which I think is bigger, the last piece from the tech side is that, you know, prior to Augur, it was just kind of too complex, complicated 
to have people be able to create their own markets, whereas, you know, in the post-Augur world, people can do that. But I think that you're right. The bigger issue is more societal. And, you know, by societal, it's really just, you know, distribution. If you look at something like Augur, and you look at kind of the benefits that it has, you know, it's, it's difficult to make people aware of these things. First, first part is kind of getting people, getting awareness, getting more people to use it. And it all kind of benefits from liquidity. So right now, I think the barriers of entry to use it are so high, like get an Ethereum wallet, you know, get Ether. And then um, today, if you participate in Augur, you have to be confident about a specific market. You know, like you have to think like, yeah, SpaceX, SpaceX is going to land the next, next rocket. But you also have to be confident that the price of the Ether is going to go up. And so the intersection of those two things is pretty small. Whereas once there's stable coin support on Augur, I think that's no longer uh, as much of a problem. And so I think from a societal standpoint, you know, the hardest piece is getting awareness, getting people aware that like this is the thing. Um, you can actually use it and, and why it's kind of fun to participate in it. From like people actually using prediction markets to make decisions, I think the, the issue there is, yeah, partly, you know, lots of organizations, you know, don't really want things that slow down their decision-making process and, and prediction markets probably fit into that category. It's kind of like a, it's like an additional layer that you have to deal with before making a decision. You know, for, so if you look at like companies, it's a tough one, right? Because like lots of things that a company would do up until it's a very, very late stage might be contrary to what like the prediction market would say, or what the market would say, because markets are, you know, despite the fact people trade in markets, markets are conservative in the sense that like, if you had a market, like say, say Elon Musk, you know, had just exited uh, PayPal, right? And he was determining like, okay, should I launch SpaceX, Tesla, you know, Neuralink or, or the boring company next? Like say he had a list of ideas and wanted to launch one of them. And you had a prediction market that was like, which of these ideas is more likely to have like a high uh, positive outcome? And then like, there's a fifth option that was like other. The market probably would have bet other um, because each of those problems individually are so, so incredibly difficult. You know, creating a new car company in the United States, uh, launching usable rockets, which NASA hadn't even been able to do. The other two haven't been executed on yet, but are in the progress of it. But they're all such difficult problems that the market probably would have said, you know, none of, the, none of these are worth doing. And so like from a business standpoint, it is hard to sell prediction markets and get people to actually use them because up until the very, very late stage you know, in a company, they're too conservative where like Elon Musk would probably rather fail than not attempt one of those four options or instead he's attempting all of them, but you kind of get the point there. But for later stage companies, you know, say a company that's publicly traded on the New York Stock Exchange and it's post IPO that are relatively conservative in trying to kind of make decisions at a high level that improve their company. I think they can be much, much more useful. It'd also be really cool to see, to see these markets on like, you know, yeah, probabilities that, certain CEOs uh, resign or get fired. It's a it's an idea by Robin Hanson, but it would be interesting because uh, one, it would kind of show what the market thought or what the market's opinion was of the CEO of a given company. And then uh, two, it also like provide like interesting ideas for people who are like trying to do, you know, say you're a hedge fund and you're trying to do like a hostile takeover, you're an activist investor. You know, you, might, you may start with the companies that have like highest level of dissatisfaction with the CEO. And there's kind of like two levels of dissatisfaction, right? Just like on the employee basis, which you can kind of just get with surveys. And then there's also like what the market itself thinks, which you can to some degree get from the stock price, but you can't, you can't 100% get it from the stock price because the stock price could be down just because like 
things aren't going well in that industry, but not necessarily because the CEO is bad versus um, if you have a separate prediction market, you can actually see like, is it because the market thinks the CEO is bad or is it really just because like the industry is going through a tough time right now? But I agree for the decision-making, it's, it's a hard, it's a hard thing to get people to use them because of the fact that um, it requires them to loosen the grip a bit on kind of control over, over the organization, whether that's a company or the government. Yeah. Zooming out uh, for a second, if you look at, you know, Augur's you know, the leader of the prediction market landscape, but if you look out at sort of the, the landscape of different prediction market projects, or what sort of trade-offs did Augur make relative to the others or, or what are they competing on? Or, or is it the same? You know, the trade-offs Augur made were like, were like um, you know, making sure that end-to-end everything is entirely, you know, decentralized and peer-to-peer. So like from the moment you, you know, load the UI, whether you download it and run it uh, on your own machine or whether you, you know, you view it on IPFS, it's not just running on somebody's server somewhere. Um, when you click on a market, the same thing is true. When you actually trade, of course, it's going through Ethereum. And then when your market resolves and when the payout happens, even that is, is peer-to-peer using kind of the reporting system that, that Augur has. So that's, that's one big differentiator from like a technical standpoint. From a practical standpoint versus kind of other markets that are you know, live today, I think the biggest differentiator is really probably the fact that there's kind of unique markets on Augur that you can't get elsewhere. Those probably won't start to see much traction, I don't think, until Augur gets some sort of critical mass of users. You know, like a thousand, a thousand people daily active sort of levels would be enough, I think, where you could start to see some traction on those unique markets. Whereas right now, kind of all we see traction on is, is the handful of large ones, like the, the, the political event markets or uh, ones on, like, say, you know, there's someone like the price of beef or something. And I guess the other big difference is uh, the thing I mentioned about kind of limits, where, like, if you're, if you're betting on something and you go to a bookie, they're going to limit you to, you know, a few thousand dollars a bet. Because again, they don't want that risk um, that they lose the bet and cause a huge impact to their balance sheet because they're betting with their own money. They're betting against you with their own money. Whereas on Augur, it's it's peer to peer, so that that piece isn't really a problem. I think those are kind of the main differentiators in in the market. How do you get people to create the actual markets? Like, what, what incentives should there be? People seem to do that a lot. Um, they create mar- create lots of markets. It's, I, don't, I, don't even, I don't even think that's like a real problem, but I'll explain kind of why do people create markets, I think. The reason I think is because when you create a market on Augur, you can set a fee in that market that goes to you due to being the market creator. And so that's, that's kind of resulted in a lot of people uh, just creating markets on Augur. It's kind of, it's like that incentive obviously seems to be very intact because there's like 2,073 markets. You know, most most kind of prediction market sites only have a few dozen. But I guess the bigger issue that we didn't figure out, really figure out yet, is like how do you incentivize people to actually send traffic to a market? Initially, the idea was like you create a market, you get a fee for doing that, and like therefore you're you are incentivized to send traffic to the market. Um, but I think what we've seen in practice is that people create a market um, and then just kind of hope that it gets traffic, right? They hope that it gets organically gets traffic. And then they can just kind of get that fee without having to actually do anything actively themselves. So I think like we're, we're thinking of ideas for like V2 of like, you know, maybe creating like a sort of referral system where if you as a user refer traffic to a market, then you actually get a portion of that fee of the market creator fee. So it's really no longer just a market creator fee, um, but also like a, a referral fee in a sense. 
And the idea is to let users choose that split. So like as a market creator, you could say, you know, I want to get give 50% of my fee to people who refer traffic to my market. Or you could go up to like 10, go down, go down to 10%, or you could go up to 90%. Uh, kind of you could do whatever you want to do there. But I think it provides a more, more flexible system where maybe we can incentivize the actual activity that we, that we intended to, which is incentivizing people to help people discover markets rather than merely creating them. And how do you think about markets with potential ambiguity? Or how, how do you think about the Oracle problem to unambiguously prove that a event occurred? Yeah, so Augur has this thing where you know people can choose to resolve a market as invalid. So in practice, that's happened. It's happened a good amount of times. Um, basically, the the system behind Augur targets the smart contracts actually target one percent of markets to be invalid. So like if if more than that is invalid, it basically raises it adds this like bond that you pay where if you, if your market's invalid, you lose the money, and it makes that go higher and higher until the invalid rate drops down to one percent. If it gets below 1%, it'll lower that bond. Um, basically kind of trying to target 1% markets being invalid. The way people deal with that is basically like, at this point, there's kind of a relatively clear set of rules for reporting in, in the sense that like, if somebody creates a market and the outcome isn't known by the time the market resolves, that's an invalid market. If somebody creates a market and you know the source that they choose shows two different results, that's an invalid market as well. This is something that people actually discovered discovered early on. Surprisingly, ESPN actually sometimes gives differing results depending on what country you view the page from. So like you could view like a baseball game from the US and then you view the same web, you view the same web page from the UK and it'll show different results um, that actually impact the market, uh, which, is, which is actually kind of surprising to me. People have kind of learned to basically use better sources and things like that. And then in, in version two of Augur, whether a market is valid or not will actually be explicitly tradable. Um, so kind of the idea of using prediction markets to make it so the end user doesn't have to pay attention to this. Right now, if you're a trader, your additional kind of cognitive overhead is like making sure that the market you participate in is a valid one. Whereas in V2, there will probably just be like filters in the UI where whereas a trader, you can filter out markets that have a probability of being invalid above some threshold. Yeah. How do you address the concern that some people had or still have about prediction markets, which is, you know, things like assassination markets where people can bet on somebody dying and then try to influence the outcome uh, itself? Or, but more broadly, how do you think prediction markets need to be set up to avoid zero or negative sum situations? Yeah, so I think by default, you know, a prediction market is kind of zero sum unless people are using the information for some like sort of predictive value, right? So um, if there's a market on a Tesla rocket launch or even like a NASA rocket launch and like the success probability is super low, you know, maybe it's because like an employee actually knows that the, the case of the NASA one, you know, imagine that an employee knows that the O-rings are fault, going to be faulty because the weather's so bad. People actually did warn them about this, but they kind of ignored it. And so like if you can actually use the information for some external reason, then it's positive sum. The only scenario where it's negative sum is like um, if it kind of has some negative externality on the world, right? So like you could imagine um, a very specific market, like a farmer created a market, like will my farm be flooded? And say for like sake of the theoretical argument, he put like a million dollars into that market, like, you know, betting no, that it's not going to happen. And then somebody realized like, well, a flood could happen and that could, you know, address, that could resolve the market. Or like I could just like buy a ton of water and spray it all over his farms such that it floods, right? 
that's like the kind of like evil externality that you could envision. Although like in practice, that doesn't really happen. And these externalities exist in the, in the traditional world too. You know, you can, you can, there's nothing preventing you from creating, you know, like a shell corp that then has access to U.S. financial markets and then buys put options. So basically provides a very kind of leveraged way to bet against the company and then does, and then do something malicious. Like you could do this to like actual farmland if you wanted, or like you could sabotage, uh, sabotage a, a manufacturing line of the company, you know, things like that. But, but in practice, that doesn't really happen. You know, maybe you hear about like, you know, industrial sabotage, maybe like once a year in the news, um, just something big happens, but, but it's, it's actually a pretty rare event. And so that's, that's kind of how I think of it here, you know, even, and then even though Augur kind of, because it's on Ethereum is, is pseudonymous, if you're using large amounts of capital, it's not that difficult for people to, for governments to trace you back to your real world identity, whether it's kind of where you got the fiat in or whether it's where you took cash out. Uh, after your bet, and so I think I think kind of for those reasons, it's it's not super practical as well because it's it's kind of since it's on the public blockchain, it's, it's kind of tracked in there permanently. So um, even if people can't figure out you know who you are for quite some time, eventually they can because you eventually cash out into into regular dollars. It's it's easy, relatively easy to find people. But I think the bigger one is just that we have these incentives in regular markets, and people don't really don't really. Uh, exercise them very often. And do you have a, before zooming out into other topics, do you have sort of a request for request for markets or request for experimentation on, on predictive markets or, or use cases you're really excited to see in the near to medium term? I think, I guess the way I think about it is um, one interesting use case, which I think, it, I think it would be hard to like figure out a way like to, to do this one in a compliant fashion, like in the U S so like you maybe have to be overseas or, you know, get a license somewhere else, like some of the people building on top of Walker are. But I think an interesting use case would be um, basically markets on, you know, things like startups, right? So investors could hedge their risk against startups that are already in their portfolio or effectively like, you know, sort of selling early almost or people who could get exposure to them who wouldn't normally have access. So basically markets on like startups, popular startups, that sort of thing could be very interesting. But it's a hard one from a reg- regulatory standpoint. As far as like actual things beyond that, though, I, I'd say at a more m- macro level, the thing that would be kind of most interesting, I think, is people kind of coming up with with clever ways uh, to basically kind of like figure out ways to get more more adoption for Augur or for UIs on top of Augur, whether that's like social sharing features and ideas, or kind of kind of like. I don't, I don't actually know like what, what clever ways you could do that there. Um, otherwise, I'd just be doing them all myself. But I think thinking of ways to basically figure out ways to get more people exposed to prediction markets such that they can actually use systems like Augur to speculate on things that the market doesn't exist in other places would be kind of things I would focus on. Yeah. And zooming out, you also spend your time at, uh, or most of your time at Pantera um, and our partner, uh, partner there. Can you talk about, you know, obviously we're in a bear market now, where you're sort of at right now in terms of what your, what your investment thesis is and wh- where you're really excited to invest right right now at this stage of the market? Yeah. So, you know, we're primarily looking at, primarily looking at a lot of infrastructure stuff. So anything from, you know, kind of more institutional grid exchanges like that, all the way to, you know, fiat on-ramps for dApps in the case of Wire, which is basically building like almost, almost like a Stripe 
uh, but for dApps so that it's like right now if you if you use a dApp and you want to get dollars in you have to leave the site go to coinbase takes a long time and you have to go back to the site that's kind of like if you went to amazon and they told you you know create a bank account on this new bank before you can buy something most people probably just never would have bought anything on amazon and that's kind of how dApps are today so they're trying to solve that problem also looking at kind of other developer infrastructure you know, looking at a company that basically makes it way easier for developers to like talk to and, and interact with Ethereum nodes. Also um, invested in a company called Synthetic Minds that um, makes it a lot easier to write secure smart contracts. It's basically a um, a way to kind of like you write some assertions about your code, like you say, like, hey, this contract if it thinks it has x dollars it should always actually have x dollars it should never have less money than it thinks it has um that's like a very basic uh thing that would have prevented a lot of previous hacks in the ethereum space uh, like the dow one and the, and the parity multi-sig one or the, or the first credit multi-sig one that is and you can add assertions for other things too that um basically make it way easier to write secure code because then what you do is after you write those assertions um like a few lines then you run their software and it automatically tries to find um, scenarios where those are wrong and basically tells you, hey, like for whatever reason, if you call the if you call a function with like these parameters, uh, we can violate this kind of thing that you always wanted to maintain or violate this this insertion. Besides that, looking at kind of a few other sort of exchange infrastructure sort of things, I say, I'd say the common theme is like infrastructure or like things that bridge kind of the existing financial system, the old one. Uh, with kind of what I call like parallel one or the new one, uh, which is which is you know of course crypto. Yeah, you mentioned back to, and you, you wrote in your most recent you know, newsletter, um, and those letters are great. Uh, is that the uh, it's solving the institutional on ramp problem? Can can you talk a little bit about this the problem and what needs to be true for for it to be solved? What are the biggest bottlenecks getting institutions more in the space? Yeah, so I'd say. Um, you know, back in 2017, institutions really couldn't buy the asset because they need to store their capital in, in regulated custodians or kind of entities that are regulated either by the SEC or the CFTC that have the ability to store these assets in a way that kind of checks the sort of compliance requirements that these entities have for storing assets. If you think of like a hedge fund or, or you know, an endowment or whoever they may be, they actually, um, interestingly enough, for the most part, you know, don't really store their assets themselves. They don't self-custody. They, they store their assets with other providers and other parties. And up until recently, um, there were there were other parties you could store your assets with, but they weren't, you know, regulated entities. So they didn't actually fulfill the regulatory requirements. Now, at this point, there are some, like companies like BitGo um, are actually regulated custodians. Bax working on a custody solution that should make them compliant, you know, under the CFTC. Uh, for storing things like Bitcoin and Ether. Um, so at that point, then it becomes at least a theoretical possibility for most institutions to buy the asset. Then the kind of next step uh, for an institution to get access to the asset is to actually like take their cash and, and put it into crypto, right? And at that point, the kind of current way it works today is you go to a site like Coinbase or GDAX and you buy it there. A lot of the institutions on Wall Street, particularly like hedge funds that are trading relatively frequently, would rather use a, an exchange that has you know super low latency numbers. Right now, even GDAX, which is pretty fast relative to other crypto exchanges, is actually still pretty slow relative to exchanges on, on Wall Street. 
And so with that, they're using the same infrastructure um, that the New York Stock Exchange uses. So um, they're basically bootstrapping off this infrastructure layer that's like really, really, uh, really, really solid. If you look at kind of like what the benefits is like, why is it beneficial to be able to trade faster is um, you actually get closer, closer and tighter prices and, and the price between like the bid and ask spread gets narrower, which means that the actual kind of like level of fees to trade is much lower, which is a good thing for institutional investors. And then I guess the last piece on that is besides like fact, there are also companies like Kagomi, which, which we invested in recently as well, that are basically creating this sort of like brokerage layers for the crypto space. So if you think of buying stocks, right, unless you're like a, you know, really connected fund or an expert, you typically don't actually like sign up at the exchange, get a membership there and then buy them directly on the exchange. Instead, you go through a broker. Um, so like you sign up on Robinhood or you sign up on E-Trade and buy them through that. And so what Tagomi is building is basically a broker for crypto. So instead of creating, I think Pantera has like 10 to 15 exchange accounts. Instead of doing that, it's going to take you hours, a bunch of headaches and doing all the KYC and, and passports and all that junk. You create one account at Tagomi. They have the exchange accounts. You send the money to them and then they get you the best price across all those exchanges. And that's actually another regulatory piece, which is some institutions actually have a legal requirement that they have to, you know, make the best effort to get the best price. A lot of them, they actually can't just create one account at one exchange. They have to create them at all of them or at a bunch of them to try to get the best price for their users versus if they just go to Tagomi, that's automatically handled for them. So it's kind of all these pieces where like two years ago, it wasn't very feasible for these, um, for these people to actually buy the asset because like they couldn't fill the regulatory requirements. All the kind of trading venues were, were venues that they didn't really understand how they worked versus now, like in a few months, once back goes live, and then we have these other two infrastructure pieces that I mentioned, like BitGo and, and Tagomi, the infrastructure is set for the next rally such that um, institutional investors will actually be able to buy crypto. And is that what's going to spur the bull market, in your view? Um, I think that's what will... Uh, extend it and really make it, you know, a, a big run. But I think what will actually spur it is maybe more, you know, maybe we start to see some kind of upticks and adoption when more scalability solutions start to go live. Like we're kind of seeing the first plasma implementations ship, but they don't really support smart contracts. So they're not really useful. And then, um, you know, we're starting to see some more stuff like Starcore is doing some work with, um, with decentralized exchanges, I think. Polkadot was launched at the end of the year. And Cosmos actually just launched and then is kind of iterating towards like where they actually want to get to. But I think 2019, we're finally starting to see these scalability solutions release. With that, I think we can finally make the user experience uh, for crypto good. Whereas like you take Augur as an example, no matter how good the UI design gets, if a trade takes, you know, 30 seconds to settle or 30 seconds to execute, it's still a bad experience. You, know, you could have Johnny I from Apple and even he couldn't design around that because it's just, it's just so slow. And that's something that only scalability will fix. But once we have those solutions in, we can start to see some actual growth and adoption on the decentralized app space beyond kind of the small amount that we've seen today. And um, at that point, I think we can start to actually like trigger a, trigger a rally and then institutions watch to make that rally extended and, and kind of go higher than it would have went just with retail. What people talk about scalability, but at the same time, it's also use cases, right? Like we, you know, we're not maxed out on like even with current scalability. 
there isn't enough adoption to to fill it. Is is that is that accurate, or do you push back on that? Like, is there demand for it? Sort of, right? So, like, for things like you know non fungible token use cases, I think that's probably true. Actually, even for them, so like an example of this is like, okay, say say your video game has like a million mostly active users. A lot there's a lot of MMOs that fit that bill, and um, say you wanted to like you know, have tradable in-game items that exist on the blockchain. Today, that use case can't even exist at all because those players know, they know for certain that they're immediately going to hit the throughput limits of something like Ethereum. I used to play like the game called Final Fantasy and and the kind of throughput number of transactions that took place on the option house in that game was about like five to 10 transactions per second. And that's just one game that wasn't even that popular. And so I think for some use cases, they can't even get off the ground at all until uh, more scalability is here. If you take Augur as an example, there's kind of like two angles to Augur, right? There's like betting and there's trading. I think the betting use cases, once dies, is, is integrated, could start to see some traction even without scalability. But I think the trading use cases, you know, they require enough scalability such that market makers can provide liquidity on both sides and market makers like to trade pretty quickly. Traders also hate latency, they like to trade pretty fast. Um, so for that use case, I think, you know, even today's scalability isn't high enough because an active trader on one market is probably going to hit, you know, five TPS. Whereas today, they'll try it once, realize that it takes 15 to 30 seconds, if it takes two bucks to confirm or whatever, and then they'll just kind of walk away. Versus somebody who's placing a bet, that's a use case that you can do today because if you, if you think about it, um, if you're not an expert anyway, if you like look at a horse race and you're like, wow, I really like, you know, this horse that has really nice, uh, really nice colors on the, on the racing silks, right. And you bet $50 on it. Then you like walk away and you go watch the horse race and then you get your winnings afterwards. Um, and so that one doesn't require high throughput because it's kind of, you place the bet and then you walk away versus trading. You're just doing it act- actively back and forth a bunch. Yeah. Z- zooming out a little bit again, peering into the future. How do you think about you know, Bitcoin, Lightning, and, and use cases uh, that ecosystem will, will have relative to uh, Ethereum or other smart contract platforms might, might take up. And, you know, there's sort of this narrative uh, that Silicon Valley, what Silicon Valley got wrong about crypto is that they didn't understand how money works and treated everything like uh, like technology or that it would follow sort of the way the, the internet developed. How do you uh, respond to that critique, uh, critique as well? Yeah. I think lightning is great. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of one of the one of the few things actually built on on top of Bitcoin from like a actual transactional usage perspective, which I think is super cool. And then lightning itself has a bunch of applications built on top of it. So I think, I think they're really starting to build a nice ecosystem there. Yeah, in terms of, in terms of like the, the Silicon Valley thing, yeah, I think yeah, I think, I think that's probably true to some degree, right? You know, it's like people who understand tech really well don't necessarily understand economics. And so if you look at crypto, it combines tech and economics, combines computer science and economics to be more precise. And up until kind of 2009, tech was always just computer science. There was really no real economics. I mean, there was like on the business plan side, but that's different because your developers aren't usually building your business plan. But in crypto, your developers are writing the software. And the software, even at the protocol layer, has economic incentives kind of built in. Yeah, so there's a lot of stuff that t- took longer than it should have or that was slowed down because of the fact that 
you know, technologists didn't understand econ or they didn't think to even bring on uh, somebody who did on their team. I think at this point, though, there's kind of more of a, there's more of a like uh, recognition that that's actually really important. Most teams now have either people who understand both the CS and econ, or they've hired somebody who understands like economic incentives and incentive design, people kind of from like game theory backgrounds. And so at this point, I think it's, it's less of a problem, but you know, for the past few years, yeah, I agree that that was something that kind of probably slowed down development in the space because of that kind of disconnect. Yeah. What's something you, you changed your mind on in the last year since we, since we last, last had you on the podcast, whether it's prediction markets or the state of crypto or, or what's something you're, you're contrarian about relative, you know, in respect to your peers? Oh yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, I guess I guess one thing is that a year a year or two ago, maybe I thought that I thought more kind of that like the best, you know, the best product and, and the best team were kind of the main main two things that mattered. And I think I think that's you know relatively relatively wrong. Instead now I think that you know, the best market is what matters more than anything else. An example of this is like you see you see startups where like the founding team is, is like in any other industry, you, you kind of consider them to be relatively incompetent, right? But they're still winning and they're still like mild, wildly successful in whatever field they're in. And the reason for those successes, I think, is because they entered a market where there was just so much market demand. It was really hard to screw it up. Like this, like, so it's like one of this one copy quote that's like, you know, you want a market where like, if you like smacked the market over the head with a stick, they still wouldn't go away from your product because they wanted whatever it is so much. And so I think in the past, you know, I used to think that like, oh, well, the team matters so much. It's, it does, it's true. And the product mattered the most kind of in that, in that the market was kind of secondary to those. But I think it's probably reversed now where like actual market demand matters more than anything else. Then I'd say kind of team probably matters the second most because um, it's important to have a good team because they can actually help execute and make something even better than it could be by just having an average one. And then product is kind of like, you can have a good product, but if you don't have like a market where there's a lot of users, it doesn't really matter how, how good your product is. I think right now, a lot of other people in crypto are still probably so focused on you know product and team. If you're investing a ton of capital into, into a team because like the team is world-class and amazing or whatever, but the market they're in just isn't, isn't interesting at all unless that team pivots, you're probably going to lose your money. And so, you know, maybe if it's a seed round, I would still maybe make the investment because they'll probably figure it out. But if it's like a series B or something, people are still throwing large amounts of capital at them and they're in a market that's just not very attractive and it's not very big. And there's not like this huge kind of like, can't beat them off of the stick sort of mentality from the market. That's something, something that I think, even if the product and team is super good, I might have invested in that, you know, a year and a half ago. Whereas at this point, I would probably pass on that because I'd be like, well, you know, the market's so important. Totally. And one thing you've mentioned about scalability that might be contrarian is that people think assume it's it's about CPU when really it's about network uh, network bandwidth in terms of the the main bottleneck. Can you, you unpack that? Yeah. So um, the kind of classic example is like, okay, you know, you have you have Ethereum, it's really slow. And you know, you ask why. A very simple empirical test for this is why don't you just create a version of Ethereum that runs on your own machine? And it's like a one-liner way to do this by creating like a Ethereum private network. 
where it's a new blockchain and you're just kind of the only node on it. And then you can test like how fast can you do transactions and you can get to really high numbers. I think like my MacBook Pro can do something like 10 to 20,000 transactions per second. Maybe it's more like 20. It's been a while since I did this, but you can actually test it empirically and see, okay, on my own machine, I can do that many. And then you can say, okay, well, what about if I connect uh, my own machine and connect it to like one of my friends in Seattle? And then the number drops a lot. Maybe it's still a couple thousand because there are only two machines in the network. Um, but you can see that it drops a ton. And then if you add like a friend who's in uh, New York, friend who's in Hong Kong, then all of a sudden it, it drops even farther. You're maybe at a couple hundred transactions per second. But then if you add like, you know, 250 friends from all over the world, maybe you tweet it out on Twitter and kind of that's how you get people to use this network. Then the throughput drops to basically be very close to what Ethereum's throughput is today, you know, 10 to 15 transactions a second. The reason for that is if you think about it, the hard part with blockchains isn't the fact that like you need to run so many transactions. It's that um, sending the data about all these transactions to other computers on the network takes a long time. And so if you look at something like sharding, where you kind of split the network up into different worlds that can communicate with each other, the main benefit isn't, isn't actually the fact that like not everyone's running all the computations. That is a benefit. Um, and it does come to play at a certain level. But the bigger benefit is that not everyone has to send all the data around the entire network. And the reason for that is that networking is, really is the bottleneck. And if you look at something like Bitcoin, the reason it does, you know, seven to 10 transactions per second is the data in that one megabyte block takes a while to get to the rest of the network. So, and the reason this is to get to the final kind of short of it, the reason is if I have a one, one megabyte block of data, it can be in Bitcoin, it can be in Ethereum, it can be in anything else. And I want to send it to a bunch of people around the world. The way that's done today is I send it to like seven to 10 nodes that I'm connected to. Those nodes each send it again to seven to 10 nodes they're connected to. And then those seven to 10 that they sent it to, it's, it's kind of like a pyramid. And eventually the whole network's aware of it. And the number of steps to go through this pyramid takes a lot longer than it would take to just download one megabyte of data from a website because all these computers are having to send it to seven to 10 people. And then those ones have to do it as well. And so it's sequential. And eventually kind of the whole network receives the data. And that's the concept of propagation. When people talk about like, oh, block propagation, like, oh, propagation times or blah, 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 blah. That's what they really mean is sending this data across the entire network. And that's where the, where the real kind of slowness is today. So if we can solve the networking problem of like, how do we cut that propagation time down a lot? You can directly get uh, scalability benefits from doing that. You guys recently invested in state, <laughs> a staking protocol for yeah. investors. Can you talk about staking as a service and more broadly this trend of, of generalized mining? So staking, you know, in case anybody's not familiar, staking is basically this concept of where things like Bitcoin use mining, where you run a piece of hardware and it, and it just kind of chugs along and mines you Bitcoin. And that's what secures the network is the computational power used to do that. Staking says, okay, you know, let's get rid of that idea. It's kind of capital intensive, it burns electricity. It's just kind of annoying as a pain. And instead, let's replace it with capital. So you basically stake your capital up front. And if you're honest, you get a return on that capital. If you're dishonest, you can lose your capital. At Pantera, we invested in a company called Staked. There's a bunch of different companies trying to do this. But what they're trying to do is basically say, okay, if you want to do this staking thing, you could do it on your own. 
but that's a big pain. So instead, why don't you just delegate your funds to us and we'll do it on your behalf. And then we'll give you most of the fee and we'll take a tiny cut. It's kind of similar to like services that vote your shares in a stock on your behalf in, in a sense. And the question is like, okay, well, like why wouldn't everyone just do their own staking? And the reason is it's actually pretty time intensive. So you have to set up a computer. That computer needs to be sure that it's not going to go down. It's not going to get disconnected from the internet. And you also want to make sure that like, basically you want to make sure that it's like really robust. And you also want it to be secure against like denial of service attacks where someone tries to shut your computer down or shut your internet down by sending you a bunch of spam. And so it turns out doing those three things is actually really hard. Amazon has done a lot of it. And the services like staked are, are built on platforms like that. But they also had a bunch of other layers uh, to make it even harder for people to, to attack you. And so it's kind of just for us anyway, it's worth the trade off. Like we started staking life here, um, you know, out of our office and then uh, ended up just switching to staked because it was a lot, a lot easier to use. And we've seen sort of looking at the crypto uh, fund market that most hedge funds have become venture funds or, or at a point where there was a point where hedge funds were the popular mechanism to invest in crypto, but now, now it's venture. Can you, can you talk about that transition and where are we right now in terms of the crypto fund landscape? Yeah. So the way I think about it is like, uh, you know, crypto is a unique asset class in the sense that, you know, you can buy tokens, you can buy equity, you can buy sometimes equity that also does a token sale. And, you know, right now we're kind of in a phase where uh, tokens are not popular at all in 2015 when we did Augur. Got a bit of popularity in 2016, a few projects did sales then. Wildly popular in 2017. Popular for the first half of 2018, then kind of a huge decrease. And then now in 2019, you know, it feels to me like 2016 was for tokens where like you'd see some once in a while, the valuations are relatively reasonable and the people doing it are you know decently high quality because they're doing it in a market that's not super, super hot. On the venture side, uh, that's of course gotten much more popular over the past year than it was in 2017. The amount of capital funding venture companies in the Washington space, I think is like 10X in 2018, what it was in 2017. Maybe this year it comes down a little bit, but it stays around that level, I think. The way, the way I think of the difference is equity in companies, it's kind of more like a market neutral play to the space in the sense that like, you know, if you're really bullish on the internet uh, in the 90s, if you could have invested in HTTP or TCP IP, that would be like the protocols that you can invest in in crypto. But in the 90s, what you would have done if you wanted an approach were like, back then there were actually competitors to TCP IP. There were like six or seven different other projects. None of them worked. But um, say you wanted market neutral exposure to that, you could invest in a company like Cisco or some other company that did underlying internet infrastructure. You could also invest in ISPs and service providers and companies in crypto are kind of similar to that. Like Wire as a fiat on-ramp or backed as an institutional exchange. To them, they don't really care kind of what wins. They don't care if Ethereum wins or Polkadot wins or if Augur gets a lot of adoption or if you know it doesn't. Or They don't care about any of that because they're built in such a way that as long as crypto works and gets adoption as a whole, they'll stand to benefit from it. Versus on the protocols, you're taking a very specific bet. If you buy, you know, like say uh, Maker tokens, you're basically betting that you know Maker will get you know traction and adoption, which seems to be doing quite well actually. 
but you're making kind of more specific bets. Whereas companies, I think, are more kind of picks and shovels infrastructure plays that don't necessarily care as much which underlying protocol wins. That makes sense. And, and you talked about you know um, adoption to to spur the um, spur the the next rally. Where do you think that adoption is going to come from, or, or what use cases are really going to uh, to inspire it? Yeah, I think in terms of adoption, I think um, really synthetic assets assets are the one I'm most excited about. So you know things things like Augur, of course, but also things like DYDX, any sort of like derivatives platform as well. I think I'm excited about. Avra's doing some interesting stuff there. There's a few others as well. Basically things where the reason I like derivatives is because they're synthetic and they don't involve the real world a ton. And so they're they're good use cases for the tech, I think. Because um, the more you touch the real world, the, the harder it gets. Like in the real world examples, you're looking at things like security tokens where you're tokenizing real world assets. There is benefit to that, but I think it's a lot harder uh, to go after. We're invested in one company in that space called Harbor. I think they're the market leader there. And so if anybody does figure it out, it, it will be them. But I think it's a really tough problem. And I also think for security tokens, it's it's kind of more of like a one to 10 improvement. It's not really like a zero to one. Whereas like, um, you know, something like Augur where you can, you know, bet on a SpaceX thing or, or like the price of the Model Y, you can't do that anywhere else. So if you want to take that risk, the only place to do it is on Augur. Or in the case of Maker, if you want, you know, a, a margin loan or a collateralized loan three in the morning, uh, on a Sunday, that's the only place in the world you can do that, which is pretty cool. It's pretty powerful when, when you know, you can say that something's kind of the only place in the world you can do X, if X is something people actually, you know, do want to do. So th- those are the use cases I'm excited about in the kind of short to midterm. I think long-term though, those are like, you know, the things I listed, they're like 5% of the potential use cases for it. Most of the stuff are things that we haven't thought of, you know, like in the internet, Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, uh, WhatsApp, all the big uh, infrastructure pieces that are in applications that people use on a daily basis and platforms that people build on are all things that didn't really exist in 1995 um, or in the late 90s. Google's still around from then. Um, But most of the other big kind of like, you know, companies didn't exist. Maybe Google and Amazon and Apple. Um, are still around, but on the social side, all that stuff is basically greenfield tech that, that didn't exist in the 90s. And I think the same thing will be true in crypto. Kind of a lot of the most successful apps may not even exist today. Right. You know, a, a couple months ago, Fred Wilson uh, criticized uh, Ethereum at, at some conference for not for not shipping enough, for not having a sense of urgency, and that they might blow their lead. How, how did you sort of react to that? Or and less about the Ethereum team specifically, but um, more about what needs to be true for for Ethereum to really fulfill its promise, or and how, how do you think it is comparing to the other the other platforms, uh, you know, in the next year or so? Yeah, I think it's a good question. I think for for Ethereum, what needs to be true is it really needs to solve the, the scalability problem because it really does hamper people from building on it a lot harder to for for anything to really take off. Like even something as simple as like zero X or Augur, like today, if people could. You know, there's somebody out there who would spend a thousand bucks running a market making bot on some like resorted zero X or offer markets. And to do that would require placing and canceling lots of orders very frequently. And so that, that this doesn't happen today because people can't do that. The reason I know people would do that is people spend, you know, much more than that on disputing reporting events. And that's because that's something you can do today on Ethereum. You know, reporting isn't, isn't high octane. It's not frequent. So um, you can actually put lots of capital into that. 
and it works fine. So I think the big issue is, is solving that scalability problem. And if you look at kind of the Ethereum team relative to the, to the market, I think they're far ahead of everybody else on the research side of things. They, they've really made a ton of progress there that the other teams can't really say that they've made quite the same. Or if you look at other teams, a lot of the research they're using is stuff that Ethereum pioneered. I'd say the area where you know Ethereum is probably weaker is that they've kind of like almost in a sense given up really kind of on the concept of like having the leading implementation be developed by like a cohesive group of people. And instead for like Ethereum 2.0, there's like 10 different development teams all working on ETH 2.0. That's I think really inefficient. You know, if you look at Ethereum 1.0, there were like three clients, two of them fell behind and actually Ethereum 1.0 really only shipped with one truly functional uh, client. Uh, Ali Zero, which nobody even knows anymore because nobody uses it, uh, was a C++ client. That fell by the wayside. The Python one was mostly used for experimentation and wasn't really used by people. Almost everyone used Go Ethereum. You downloaded Geek, you downloaded Mist. Those are the things that people used. And then over time, um, more implementations developed. Now you have Parity as a kind of another front-running implementation for Ethereum. But uh, for ETH 2.0, I think they've gone almost too far in the direction of like, let's build a ton of implementations. There's so many teams working on it. I think it would be a lot more efficient to have less people working, well, less different teams, but more people working on the same teams uh, focused on this. You know, you don't really need more than two or three implementations uh, in my opinion to get the thing out the door. And of course, you know, people are going to say, well, but uh, you know, you, you get diminishing returns to adding more developers on one project. And that's true. But if you have 10 projects that are all relatively underfunded, with relatively small amounts of developers on them, and you combine those into three projects that are well-funded and have larger amounts of developers on them, and it can work cohesively together. And maybe those three projects, you can communicate back and forth to sync up on things about the implementation. That's my kind of personal view. It's from having seen hundreds of companies and tech teams that that would work better than the way they've kind of been doing it today, which is where it's like, it's so disparate that development process probably isn't as, isn't as fast and as iterative as it could be. And the only last thing I'd add on that is that the kind of research team and the development teams could work a lot more closely together than, than they do today. You know, no matter what people, people say, I know that they're not working super closely together because of the fact that you see things like the research design just changes rapidly at some points in time. Like I remember a year or so ago, they're going to release proof of stake and then they're going to release charging as a separate release. And then they just rewrote everything. And then um, there's another time after that where they kind of rewrote the entire design again. I think for the development teams building this, having a huge rewrite from the design side where like the design just kind of like, it's like you have a canvas and you rip the whole canvas off and then you put a blank one on and, and say, hey, oh, actually build this instead. It'd be like if you're an architect and you had like a team building a building and then when they're halfway through, you said, actually scratch that. We're going to build a different building. Let's demolish this one and start again. So I guess to wrap it up, you know, I love Ethereum. I think it's still the market leader. It's still the farthest away in terms of like actually executing on that. But I do agree with Fred Wilson to some degree in the sense that like Ethereum is the market leader more because of the fact that it's, it's found this market of developers. And going back to what I talked about, you know, like the thing that changed, changed in the past year and a half for me is Ethereum is market leader because it has its massive developers. It's not market leader because it has really good development processes. 
and Ethereum could kind of guarantee itself to be the the total winner if they added good development processes and good kind of like team dynamics to the fact that they already have a killer market. If that makes sense. Yeah. What do you say to to, to the the people who say that that anything that works outside of Bitcoin will eventually be just adopted into Bitcoin? Will copy it and and leverage that use case. Yeah, I mean, I think I think we know that that's not true at this point. Um, you know, the blockchain team. I remember back in 2014, you know, they basically said like, you know, "Hey, we're going to get this op curry implemented into Bitcoin Core so that we can have two-way peg side chains without having to trust other other parties." And then that op code never really got implemented. Um, and it was a very simple like STV proof verification op code. I remember, I remember, I I said on Reddit at one point that like. You know, it could be five years before this is implemented. And uh, Greg Maxwell was like, no, that's BS. Like, I definitely didn't say that. There's no way it could be five years before that's implemented. And now it's actually five years later and it's still not implemented. So I think it goes to show that you know, that, that argument isn't really true. I think, I think you have to be able to be willing to move a bit faster than that to actually get stuff done. Ethereum, you know, despite me saying that its development processes could be improved, actually does do a really good job does do a really good job borrowing from other projects when they release a good idea. You know, if somebody like has a good idea on the theoretical side, the Ethereum uh, research team will borrow that, borrow that idea and, you know, integrate it into Ethereum on the research side versus, you know, Bitcoin is kind of like our way or the highway. And, you know, we say that we'll integrate everything, but in practice, we haven't really added very much to it. Yeah. That makes sense. How do you see the world, uh, or how does Pantera see the world differently from from Andreessen Horowitz or, or Polychain? Yeah, good question. I'd ha- I guess I guess I'd have to talk to them more to really understand you know their exact thesis because they haven't really neither of them have really published a whole lot, you know, in that regard. Uh, like we we just kind of published one back in like January or February, like January, you know, called like a crypto thesis, which is kind of our viewpoint on the market. But I think there is a good amount of difference in opinion there because. If you look at kind of, you know, the companies we've invested in, there's not a ton of overlap. Like uh, Andreessen and Polychain, you know, aren't in uh, BACT as an example. Or um, I'm not sure if they're in Tagomi or not either, but I don't remember seeing them in that deal. So it's kind of like those are two examples of of things where, where, you know, there's clearly clearly some difference in opinion there. I do think that there are some similarities. Like I know for sure that, you know, the Andreessen team is really excited about the poly, poly, poly chain as well. It's excited about, you know, decentralized finance use cases. Like all three of us love uh, Maker as an example. Um, I think it's a really cool project. And so I think it's, it's basically good that there's some difference in opinion. Otherwise, you know, basically, so if, there's, if there's not, then like kind of everyone funds the same investments. Uh, those investments are probably super overpriced because everyone's funding the same ones. And there's not really any experimentation, right? If you, if you have difference in opinion across different firms like you had in the internet days, uh, that was good because it allowed different ideas to get tested versus, you know, if everyone just invested in the same stuff, you know, maybe you would have had a ton of money going into Yahoo and nobody would have funded Google or something. And so I guess the last thing I'd say is, um, you know, I think we may, may put a little more um, precedence on like, making sure the tech is actually a hundred percent, you know, solid than other firms, because, you know, I've seen the crypto space where you have people who come out promising the moon on kind of what they're going to deliver on the tech side. 
don't actually end up doing it because the kind of core concept or core idea was flawed. It's a staying really up to date, unlike the E3 search community and things like that. It makes it a lot easier for us and say other firms to diligence that side of the, of the table. Yeah. One simplistic way of their view is that they think, you know, trust as a primitive is, is the real innovation here and, and money is, is just the first application, but there will be, there will be many. Do you think that there will be many use cases beyond beyond money and what types of things do you think will work as use case, obviously prediction markets, but and what things, uh, what things won't that people think, you know, could be use case for, for blockchain. Yeah. So I think, you know, things that won't work are, th- are things where like, you don't really need it. Right. So like, if you look at, if you look at blockchain tech, it's a good way to do transactions that people, yeah, as you said, you know, it's people you don't necessarily trust. Maybe you would trust them if you, you know, met up with them in person a dozen times and, you know, had coffee with them or whatever a bunch. But because of the fact that they're kind of all over the world and pseudonymous, you don't really know them. So you don't really trust them. And the idea of blockchain tech is that you don't have to because the economic incentives should add up such that you actually stand to benefit more from being di- from being honest to you, from being dishonest. And so use cases that don't work very well are things that don't really need that. An example would be like, say you're creating a supply chain application and the application you're creating is one that uses blockchain to track diamonds. I've seen this pitch like 50 times and it doesn't make any sense because people in the real world, people, you know, sending diamonds around forever have to report the information to the blockchain. And so if you're trying to prevent like say blood diamonds as an example, well, somebody who's breaking the law to buy and sell blood diamonds isn't going to have a problem with submitting invalid data to the blockchain to report that their blood diamonds were actually not blood diamonds. So like these sorts of use cases that are involved in real world a lot are ones that don't benefit a whole lot. Another example of this is like property titles. You know, if you're in a if you're in a totalitarian regime, people want to say, well, let's just put the property titles on the blockchain. That way the government can't steal it. And the reason property gets stolen in those countries isn't because like sometimes it is, but most of the time it's not because people have no idea who really owns the property. It's more because like if there's a totalitarian regime that comes to your home with AK-47s and says, get the hell out, you know, your alternative is to let them shoot you. So you get out and blockchain is not going to benefit that at all. Like it doesn't matter if somebody, you know, it doesn't matter if you own it on chain, but at the end of the day, you got smacked in the head with a sledgehammer. Um, so things that involve the real world super closely are, are bad use cases. I think things that are good use cases, cases are things that exist mostly in the virtual world. And if you think about money, and you think about kind of finance, it's becoming more and more digital. You know, I very rarely go to an ATM and actually get cash out. The only time I do that is because like there's some person or merchant who forces me to pay in cash. That's the only time. Uh, if it weren't for those two reasons, I would never go. And even then I go to the ATM like maybe like two or three times a year. That's it. And so cash has already basically become digital. So the amount of use cases that can exist purely in the virtual world is actually surprisingly high. Lower hanging fruit, obviously, I guess things like derivatives, things like synthetic assets, you know, non-fungible tokens, trading video game items, that sort of thing. You know, things like online poker where the house can't steal your money and they can't bet it, you know, they can't, you know, like illegally bet against you, things like that. And then over time, I think more and more use cases start to pop up. As scalability starts to improve, you know, you eventually start to see some of the web 3.0 use cases people love to talk about, things like decentralized versions of Twitter and Facebook that don't censor things like that. What are the, the state of, of DAOs or what are you most excited to see as it relates to uh, DAOs uh, looking forward? 
Yeah, I mean, um, you know, like the the DAO back in 2016 was a really interesting idea. I didn't actually put any money into it because I thought it was like, I, I called it stupid, but not because I thought the core idea was stupid, but just because I thought that the kind of execution didn't make a ton of sense. It was too early. Um, there was too much capital put into it. That sort of reason is the reason I, why I didn't put any money into it. I think, you, you know, decentralized organizations do have potential. And I think we'll finally kind of start to see some. You know, we see some to some degree of things like, you know, Decred, where the network kind of has like governance and voting over various various aspects of the network. And then we'll see them even to a larger degree with things like Polkadot Ship, where that network has tons of governance layers built in. You know, the token holders could vote for like adding a new uh, a new parachain or basically adding a new sidechain. Um, they could vote on, you know, like what inflation rates will be. They could vote on a lot of different things. And so I think it'll, we'll finally start to see some experiments there again, which is why I'm excited to see that. Yeah, I guess that's that's basically it. Is you know, really see some experiments on governance, things like that. Pick one of these two to answer the last question. Uh, one is on uh, Austrian versus Keynesian uh, economics, and if you have a, a view there. And the second one is on um, uh, China and and that adopting popular protocols or or what you guys do in Asia or what to expect there. Yeah, I'll, ask, I'll answer the um, Austrian one. You know, to start off, I think Keynesian economics gets a gets a really bad rap, and the reason is because politicians they kind of bastardize it. And so, what I mean by that is, you know, Keynesian economics says that you should, when things are going super well, you should save capital, save money as a government, and then when things are going poorly, you should stimulate the economy and spend more. Now. What government officials and political uh, politicians do is they say, okay, so when things are going bad, we'll spend more. And then when things are going well, we'll spend a good amount, but we'll never actually save any capital. And so the reason, the reason that's a problem is they're just constantly spending. And so if you think of Keynesian economics, people have this public perception because politicians kind of bastardize it is that that like the concepts don't make sense or it doesn't work because of the fact that there's just this constant onslaught of spending. Whereas in practice, politicians use Keynesian economics as an excuse. You know, they say, well, it's the most respected kind of uh, field in economics. It makes sense. That's why we'll follow it. They don't actually follow it. They just kind of use it as an excuse. So if you look at Austrian economics, it's basically a very, very kind of different philosophy where it basically says, you know, well, the government, the government is kind of just, you know, too incompetent to actually like, follow a very rigorous monetary policy or kind of to have too much leeway in it. So Austrian uh, view is kind of like, well, we trust the government a bit less. So, you know, maybe let's do something like the gold standard where the government can't just print more money. And so they can't constantly spend. And uh, so that that's kind of interesting and appealing from that standpoint. One thing people mess up is they always say, you know, well, inflation is like this silent tax that, you know, takes all your money. And uh, that's, that's true to some degree. But when inflation is predictable, when it's like when you're targeting like a certain inflation rate, like 2%, it's also very easy to avoid that. You know, you can buy short-term T-bills and, and avoid that, that sort of inflation. The average person doesn't though, which is why in practice, it does actually take money from people. What's really weird about this is um, <clears throat> in, any, in any sort of crypto economic network, like I'm sure like if, if you propose this idea for a cryptocurrency where like people could put their money in short-term you know, T-bills essentially to get, you know, 2% yield. Otherwise they get, they face 2% inflation a year. 
every kind of crypto economist and person in crypto would say, well, anybody who wouldn't put it in a short-term bonds is irrational and an idiot. And so nobody, nobody will, everyone will just put all their money in the bonds. But in practice, in the real world, things like that don't happen. The actual field of economics, I think it's more interesting that I like is like the Chicago economics because it's much more practical and uh, kind of has like elements of a little bit of kind of distrust of government monetary policy from, from the Austrian perspective, but also a bit of practicality from the Keynesian perspective. And the Chicago school really kind of puts a precedence on like free markets and kind of doing that as those as one of the more important things from an economic perspective, even more important in many cases than the actual kind of exact underlying monetary policy. Because monetary policy is kind of like a kind of like a, a step function in a sense where like you don't want it, it doesn't have to be perfect. Like US monetary policy is not perfect, but the dollar is still the, the world reserve currency. You just don't want it to be bad. And like the definition of like bad monetary policy, the classic one is like, you know, uh, Zimbabwe, where you have you know trillion dollar bills that or hundred trillion dollar bills and the currency is devalued or, or a country like Venezuela. But past a certain point when it's kind of good enough. So like the pound, the euro, Swiss franc, the yen, the yuan, all those sorts of currencies, they're good enough. And even if they're not the reserve currency, their monetary policy is decent. And so that matters more in some cases is actually like the underlying market structure in, in certain countries. In fact, there's actually a great book on this. I forget the name off the top of my head. Maybe I can send it after. That's about how like, if you look at why certain countries succeed and other ones don't, a lot of it comes down to basically basic economic freedoms. So that's, that's kind of one of the big tenets of the Chicago School of, of Economic Thought. And that's, that's why I'm such a fan of it. Joey, this has been a, another fantastic episode. For people who enjoyed listening to this and want, want to learn more, you can follow Joey at Joey Krug on, on Twitter um, and learn more about Augur at www.augur.net and uh, make some, some markets, uh, make, some, make some bets. Uh, Joey, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Yeah, thanks. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 